Good evening. Glad you're here. We're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Glad you made the effort to be here. Uh, we had an excellent meal. Had a good had a good meal there. I want to thank everybody who had a part in that. Tonight we're going to get started in our in our second Bible study. We've had a, an introduction lesson, then we had our first lection, lesson. Uh, we've had a couple of weeks off because of the weather. Tonight we're going to look at our second lesson. Our Bible study is called the Grand Scheme of Things, and we're making a survey, a sweep starting in Genesis, going all the way to the book of Revelation, uh, looking at really big building blocks that will stack on top of each other, helping us inform our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. So we're excited about this. It's going to take about a year to go through. Uh, it is a church-wide study, and so the other classes that are meeting, they are looking at this as well. Our kids and our, our youth are looking at the same thing as well. Again, tonight is our second lesson. Uh, tonight, it is entitled, Mankind and marriage, mankind and marriage. We're going to talk about the question tonight. Really, we started it last time. How did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, let me give you a very quick review tonight. Uh, the first thing we started with, and really it is the starting place, is that God is our creator. God is the creator, and he is our creator God. In our Bible, in the Bible, he tells us how he creates, uh, and, then, and then we know from that, we looked at it last time, all other ideas are just guesses. They're just speculation. They are estimations. Uh, he is the only eyewitness to creation. And so he has told us how he creates, that he is the creator. Now, a big thing comes out of that, and that is the truth that he has recorded his account because he wants it known. Now think about it, that just makes sense. He has recorded the account of creation because he wants us to know it. It is not a puzzle. It is not a riddle. It's not something we have to, to study and to piece all the things together. He records the account of creation and he gives it to us because he wants us to know it. And that's a big thing. He wants us to know the creation account. And then therefore, it is foundational to everything else that he's going to tell us. Uh, it's like a book. If we were to start in the middle of it, we would miss a whole bunch. We would miss uh, definitions and understandings. We would miss context. Well, uh, the creation account is foundational to everything else that God's going to tell us. And I truly believe that. Uh, we understand the rest stacked upon what we learn in Genesis in the creation account. All right, tonight we're going to start off uh, with a game, and I'm going to need seven people uh, to help me with this game. It is Giant Jenga, 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 something like that. Uh, you want to help me with this? Linda will help me, and you'll help me. <laughs> Coach Blue, will you help us with this, with our Giant Jenga? Gary, you want to help us? Robbie? Daniel's up. All right. All right, we need one more. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Here we go. All right, there are seven pieces of candy. There's a Hershey's bar. Uh, there's Oreo Chips Ahoy. There are circus cookies. Here's the deal. One at a time, I'm going to ask you to take a block out of the giant Jenga stack. If it stands when you pull your block out, 
You don't have to re-put it on there as the real game goes. If you, if you pull your block out and it continues to stand after you get it out, then you get to choose a piece of candy or a, or a dessert. Does that make sense? All right, you want to go first? He says, just do it. Let's go. Any block. You can pull any block. He's serious. All right, still standing. Stack your block. Pick a deal. Any block you can take off. Danny, you want to go? Wow. All right, pick you one. Linda's a, just basically an engineer. <laughs> Any block on this stack, you take it off, it still stands, you win. You're done. <laughs> Smart. That's why I said she's basically an engineer. Robbie, you want to go? Any block, you pull it, it stays, you win. Then you're going to go. Any block you take it, it stays, you win. Any block, any block. Any block. Woo-hoo, made me sweat. Any block. It could be easy. <laughs> Good job. Let me, let me ask you something about our game tonight. Did you notice, some of them were pretty brave, but did you notice nobody took from the foundation? Nobody took the bottom three rows. No one took the bottom three squares. Uh, generally, they took, they took some higher ones. Some of them are pretty brave. Uh, Linda started off the smartest thing I've seen, take one of the top ones. Um, let, me, let me tell you the point to all that is this. If you pull from the foundation, you rattle everything that's built on top of it. And that's just the truth. If you pull from the foundation, you rattle everything that's built on top of it. I'm going to try and pull one of these bottom ones off. I don't know if I can do it. There's one. What are the odds of two coming off? Not good. You ever watch that show where they do it fast and it stays? I think that's the trick. (laughs) That didn't work. The point to all that is this. When you pull from the foundation, everything built on the foundation becomes suspect. Everything built on the foundation becomes wobbly. The book of Genesis, the starting place, is the foundation for everything we have in, in scriptures moving forward. They are foundational. The truths found there are foundational for everything we're going to learn. Do you see now, just the second week, why Satan attacks that? 
Why Satan says it's not possible like that? Well, there must be some weird things going on there. And the attack comes very early, very soon, uh, to make it shake our foundation. Tonight I'm going to start, and I'm going to read the entire second chapter of Genesis, and then we're going to move into our lesson from there. Now just listen and follow along. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to read the entire account to us. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and the water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, out of the, ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havalah, there where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The onk stone is there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, of the, out of the, ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, before we start, I just want to make one observation here 
uh, really in the form of a question, and that is this. Are there any reasons to count this account as symbolic or as literal in nature? I've read that account. As we finish it, are there any reasons to count this as a symbolic account or as an account that is not literal? Now, I thought about that, and I thought about different explanations that are offered, but really they all come back to one thing. The only reason that you would call this not literal or you would call it symbolic is because you are taking issue with what God has said in chapter 2. You're saying there's some problem here. It can't be like this. It is not like this. And so then you start the search for a symbolic meaning or a meaning that's not literal. Uh, any reason to count this as symbolic or not literal is to, to question the validity of the second chapter. All right, from there, now let's move into our lesson. You have a sheet tonight. The question again, second week, is how did we get here? Again, there's only one eyewitness, and that is God himself. He has given us his record. He wants us to know it. That is why he has given it to us. In that account, we see some great truths. One of them is Adam is created as the first man. Uh, after he sees his need for a companion, the animals come by, and he sees there's a companion for all the other animals. After he sees his need, God creates the first woman. Her name is Eve. The Bible says they are perfect, experiencing no disease, no death, the Bible says they walk with God. That's the creation account, the, the origin of life given to us from God himself. Now, I want, I want to pick out one piece of that, and it's a big piece, and really it encompasses a lot there, but it is the idea that we are image bearers, that we bear the image of God, that we are created in the likeness of God. We read that in the account, we know that, we say that, Mankind is reported as being created in the image of God. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? What does it mean that you are created in the image of God? Now, I want to tell you a couple of quick things, and then we're going to go a little bit deeper in the study. What does it mean that we are image bearers, that we are made in the image of God? First thing is this. People are the pinnacle, the peak of God's creation. Now, think about that for just a second. No other thing, no other, no other animal, no other part of creation is made in the image of God. People are made in the image of God, therefore they are the pinnacle, the peak of God's creation. Now, there are folks that love their pets, and they, they say, that's my fur baby, and that's part of my family, uh, and they may love that pet, but that pet is not a person. People are the pinnacle of God's creation. Some folks get mad at people, and they go somewhere and say, well, look at this mountain. Look how marvelous this is. Who needs people? I'll just build a cabin out here. I'll go to the beach. Look at the vastness of the beach, the ocean here. Who needs people? I'll just sit here and gaze into this. Understand, only people are built, made in the image of God. Therefore, people are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, that's going to carry a whole lot of weight and a lot of implications moving forward. From there, we see this. As image bearers, 
All people have great worth and value. We need to understand that. We need to be sure of that. All humans, all people made in the image of God, that's all of them, have great worth and great value. All people. Now, that means the people we do not like, they have great value and worth. It means the ones not like us. Sometimes we like the ones like us. The ones not like us, they have great worth and value. All people made in the image of God have great worth and value. I want you to understand what Satan does. Satan instantly tries to turn that upside down. Well, they do this. Well, they've done that. Well, they're from over there. Well, do you know how they live? And we start to actually put values on people. Well, they're not wanted. Well, they're an inconvenience. Pick, pick your category. All people, because they're made in the image of God, they have great worth and great value. Another thing we see, people have a spirit. God is a spirit. We are made in his image and his likeness. We have a spirit. That is the difference in people and animals. Uh, they do not have a spirit. We have a spirit because we're created in the image of God. That's a deep thing as well. And then the last thing is this, and it's huge as well. People reflect God's image. We're image bearers made in the image of God. And so we give a reflection of the image of God, and therefore we are to magnify him. We are to glorify him. Think about that for a second. As people, as, as humans created in the image of God, we reflect the image of God. Now, that is marred because of sin. It's less than what it was or what it could have been because of sin, but we still are image bearers created in the image of God, and so we still give a reflection of God, of his glory. And so even in our sinful state, you can see aspects of the God that were made in his image. So we exist to magnify him, to glorify him, to reflect uh, glory on him uh, as his image bears. And so understand, it is a big deal, it is a huge deal that we are created in the image of God. We are to glorify the God that we're created in his image. We're to, we're to, to reflect positively, bring glory to him. Again, it is a big deal to be an image bearer. All right, now from here, I want to go to something very practical, uh, something that, that, that really we need to hammer out and talk about, and that is the subject of evolution. Uh, we talked about this last week. We're going to talk about it again this week. Uh, evolution is the predominant theory given for the, for the, as, as the explanation for the origin of life. And that in our world, in our culture today, it is the predominant theory given to explain the origin of life. Um, our biology books, our science books, uh, primary, starting very young, secondary, collegiate, they, they focus on evolution as the explanation for the origination of life. In our history, our, our, our close history right here, that starts uh, to escalate in about 1920. Now, it shows up about 1900. Uh, it starts to escalate about 1920. Now, there's a trial called the Scopes Trial. There's a, a teacher that goes on trial uh, for teaching evolution. You can go and look up some more on that. So it begins to escalate in the 20s. It begins to escalate picking up speed 
in the 50s and in the 60s. Now, if you can go find a textbook that old, they would put a chapter or a heading of creation and evolution in the same science book. And so they would say, here's the creationist view, and here, here's the view according to evolution. Uh, it begins to escalate and pick up speed uh, throughout the 70s, and by the 1980s, it is taught pretty much as scientific fact. Here's how it happens. There's this, and it mixes with this, and it splits into this, and the process of evolution is given as the explanation for the creation of life. Um, I can remember, and I, I don't feel like I'm that old, but I'm getting that way. I can remember when it was called the theory of evolution, and then I can remember when it was called the law of evolution. They started to call it a law uh, as if it's proven and validated and holds uh, that esteem, that understanding. So it is the predominant explanation of the origin of life today in the world we live in. I want to show you a couple sets of things out of that. What does the idea, and I want you just to think, what does the idea of evolution rob still from our understanding of people? All right, we teach evolution, the idea, the concept of evolution. What does it rob? What does it steal from our understanding of people? Let me just go, I'm gonna go piece by piece. Here's what evolution takes away from our understanding of people. The first thing is this, it takes away our value. It takes away people's value. Now, let me tell you why. Evolution says you are a random result of a random process. This mixes with this, produces that. Over time, it produces this. And so you, as an individual, you're a random result of this random process. You are not special. You're just part of this, this, this flow. You are not uh, a valuable uh, in that in the aspect we understand it because of the, 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 the fact that you're the random result of a random process. So stolen away from people in the idea of evolution is value. The next thing is purpose. In evolution, your purpose as an individual is to produce DNA and a genetic mix that is prosperous for the next generation. And that's all evolution is concerned with. You're supposed to produce DNA and a genetic mix that strengthens, that prospers the next generation. You do not have a purpose to create, to think, to honor God, to worship. You're just this random piece of a, of a chain of events, and so you are robbed of your purpose. Your purpose is to, to produce DNA. Now, if you're weak in that, you're going to die off. If you're weak in that, you're not important. But if you can produce a, a characteristic that will help the future generations, that is your purpose. You do not have the purpose to think and to create, to love, to worship God. Another thing surrendered in that teaching, the understanding of, of evolution is your dignity. Your dignity, now think about this, your dignity comes from your purpose and your value. You have a great value made in the image of God. You have a great purpose to glorify God. If we take both of those away, you now have no dignity. You're a thing. You're a base thing. You're a common thing. Your dignity is removed because your value and your purpose are removed. 
And then here's one I hadn't thought about, and it's, it's a couple, about three weeks ago we were talking through this, and this one struck as well. You know something else that gets jerked away if you embrace evolution? The idea of eternity. In evolution, the end is the end. The end, when you die, it is the end. You've fulfilled your purpose. Hopefully you passed on a genetic trait that was strong to somebody else. But when you end, you end. Your purpose is served and you end. The Bible actually says people are built with eternity on their hearts. And I, I watch people, the loss of a death. You know why it hurts? Because we're built with eternity. We're not built to separate. We're not built for death. The, the idea that there's got to be something more than this. And I'm talking about pagan cultures. There's got to be something more than this. You know what that idea comes from? The fact that we have eternity on our hearts. The, the cultural idea that we have to preserve ourselves. And I think about Carnegie and libraries and Rockefeller and buildings. They want their name on something. Folks that put their name on a hospital or a, or a, a bunch of buildings at a college, they don't want to be forgotten. You know why? Because our hearts are built for eternity. We long for something more than what ends at death. If you embrace the truth of evolution, eternity's jerked away from you and lost in your belief set. Let me ask you this. Aren't those the things that Satan wants to steal from us? Think about that. Came to steal, kill, and destroy. Doesn't he want to take away your value and your purpose and your dignity, for sure doesn't he want to rob you of eternity? Aren't those the things that Satan wants to take away from us? All right, the next thing is this. What does evolution instill in us? Okay, those things are robbed away. And I, I look at those, and I just want to say right here, isn't that our day? Don't people say, I, you, you, you have no dignity to me, you have no value to me, I have no value, I don't know what my purpose is. I, we were reading something a couple weeks ago about people can't find their purpose. Isn't that our day? All right, so those things are robbed away. Here, here are some things that evolution instills in us. The teaching and the embracing of evolution, these things are put into us. The first thing is this, selfishness, which means this, it is about me. If I have no greater purpose, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to please myself. I'm going to make sure I'm comfortable, and I'm not going to worry about you. If I'm robbed of, of a greater purpose, I become very selfish. The first thing it puts in, selfishness. Second thing is this, and I think this is very interesting. Evolution instills in us pride. Now, you think it would be the opposite. You're just a random result of a random thing. What pride do you have? But it actually puts pride in people. Now, let me explain what that means. In our human nature and in our sinful nature, we have the idea that if there is evolution, then I must be the top of the evolutionary chain. And, and so if, if we're evolving, then I've evolved higher than y'all, for sure. That's our mindset. Now, let me give you an example. The folks that actually flesh this out, establish it, and make it an accepted teaching. Um, Charles Darwin, about four or five of his close understudies, uh, go read their writings, and you can, go, you can go when you leave here and Google it and go look at it. 
They teach that the highest evolved thing is a human. They teach that the highest evolved human is a white man. Do you know why? They were white men. Wouldn't it be weird to say, I, I researched and the highest thing is not me. No, if you're making the system, the highest thing is going to be you. I said this last time we met. They actually said, and you can go look it up, that women are on the same level with colored men and apes. That's what they said. The people that wrote this teaching, that's now our predominant explanation for life, they see themselves as the peak of the evolutionary chain. Well, if you were the one writing it down, isn't that what you would say? So it brings pride. You think it wouldn't? It brings pride. That brings, guess what? Division. If somebody's less evolved than me, and I'm more evolved than them, guess what we have? We have a problem. We have a layer. We have status. We have, I'm more important than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more needed than you. And division is the result. I truly believe the result of, of teaching evolution produces division. Let me just say this, and I'll, just, I'll shout it, and this is being recorded and going out, and I hope somebody shares it and plays it for somebody else. I think the, one of the core causes of the racism that divides our nation is because somewhere in 1920 and 1950 and 1960, we started saying somebody else is less evolved than me and we started racial division. I believe it's responsible for that. All of that brings us to this, hopelessness, hopelessness. If you are stuck in a random process and you have no real meaning and you have no real dignity and you have no real value, how would you be anything but hopeless? And I think about that. Well, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what, what you think. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter if you worship God who created you. You become very hopeless. I think this is the, the hallmark of the day we live in today. People are hopeless because they have no purpose. They have no dignity. They have no value. And if nothing means anything, then you know what? It's complete hopelessness. Let me ask you this. Aren't these the things that Satan brings? Aren't these the things that Satan wants you hopeless? Satan wants you divisive and divided. Satan loves racism. Satan loves pride, the root of sin. He loves it. Selfishness. God told us how he did it. And he wanted us to know it because he recorded it for us. And when we change that, we start to pull blocks out of the foundation. Guess what? It's doomed to fall. All right, next subject, we're going to talk about this, and then, and then we'll be done in, in not too long. The next subject that comes from, from our set of verses, and we see it walked out in these early chapters, is the truth of biblical marriage. We caught it at the tail end of, of chapter 2. We're going to see it in some other places coming up. But we see the truth of biblical marriage. Let me walk you through this that we see in Scripture. The first thing is this. Biblical marriage is ordained by God. And that's, that's a big thing. Sometimes we think, well, we got lonely, so we created an institution. Well, we needed security, so we made an institution. No, 
Marriage is built, instituted, ordained by God. We see that. It is, it is his plan. It's not the creation of people, of lawyers, of court systems, of need. It is ordained by God. It is not man-made. And so understand, biblical marriage is ordained by God. Let me say this. So do you see why Satan would attack it? Do you see why the culture would attack it? All right? The next one. Biblical marriage, we see it already very quick in our, in our verses in Genesis, is between one male and one female. One male and one female. Now you say that's Old Testament. That's New Testament as well. Jesus himself confirms it. It is between one male and one female. Now what that means is this. Not only is marriage ordained by God, marriage is defined by God. We don't get to define it. We don't get to change the definition. We don't get to say, well, things have happened in the last 100 years or 50 years or 60 years. Marriage has been defined by God. It is one man and it is one woman. That, that is the plan. That is the definition of a godly, God-ordained marriage. That's Old Testament and New Testament as well. Do you see what happens now when we say, well... Does it really matter? Well, what business of that is that of ours? Well, things are different now. Who am I? Who's the church to say who a person loves? I hear that all the time. It is ordained by God. It is defined by God. Now, I want you to see this, and it's big. It is also the structure for the home. Ordained by God, defined by God, it is the structure for the home. There is no framework, structure of the home outside of this. In God's plan, read, the, read it as it's defined, a man marries a woman, he leaves his mother and his father, and that man and that woman form a home. They build, they become, they actually produce a home. Now look, God doesn't make a plan B and a plan C and a plan D for that. The framework for a home has been defined by God. Satan attacks that. We'll change that up. Well, that's, that's outdated. Well, we've figured out something better. We can change that. You change it to your own peril and the peril of the culture. That's what we're seeing right now. And then here's, here's something that we need to say, and we don't say it enough. Biblical marriage is ordained by God. It is defined by God. It is the structure for the home. Here's something else. It is a blessing. Marriage is a blessing. It is created by God not to curse us, not to give us hardship, not to see if we're tough enough to endure. It is created as a blessing to us, as a blessing to our offspring, our kids, as a blessing to the culture that we exist in. It is a good thing. It is a gracious thing. It is a kind thing. <laughs> we, we live in a day when people want to belittle marriage and say, well, my old lady, well, my ball and chain, well, yeah, she did this. And then there's, there's somewhere else saying, well, yeah, but he does that. And if you knew what he did, and you, oh, he does that. And, 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 and we belittle that, and our kids see that, and our culture sees that. And we act like it's a bad thing. Well, I'll get married if I have to and you force me and all the pressure's put on me because it's so hard and so bad. It is a blessing. It makes permanent. 
what God means to be permanent. It is a blessing to you, to your offspring, to the culture. Marriage is a good thing. Now, let me just tell you this. If you do it outside of God's will, it is a hard thing. It is a tough thing. But done in God's will, it is a blessing. We need to say that. We need to let our kids know that. All right? I'm going to look at one last thing, and then we're going we're to wrap up tonight. There is a, a thing, and, and I never heard it taught on until I did hear it. And then once I heard it, I thought, what a shame that we do not explain this. And so I, I want to talk about something that I think has been abused and has been misappropriated, has been used really uh, to the detriment of, of half of the earth. In verse 18, it says, I will make him a helper suitable. Another translation says a suitable helper. Now, further down, it says again, a helper, verse 20, suitable for him. I want to take it just a minute, and I want to explain that. I want everybody to listen to this. The word in Hebrew is ezer konegdo, ezer konegdo. When we hear a helper suitable or a suitable helper, here's what we think. He's going to do the big things, and you're going to help him do it. He's going to do the important things, and you're going to be his aid as he does it. Now, what that means is he likes supper at 6, and he likes bacon for breakfast, and he likes his tea glass to never be empty. And, I, and I, 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 you know what? She needs to submit, and she needs to be a suitable helper to me, and I'm going out to do the big things of life, and I need my things, and so my suitable helper better be helping me suitably. And that is, that is what we've taught, and that is what we've trained. That is terribly misappropriated. Here's what it means. And I, I, I remember when I figured this out, uh, I couldn't wait to tell my wife and I couldn't wait to tell my sister and I couldn't wait to tell my daughter. Here's what this means. Ezra Konegdo actually means Hebrew helper, but not like a person that fills tea glasses. It means, listen to this, equal opposite. Equal opposite. It's, it's like two things that fit perfectly together Equal opposite. Here's another translation. Corresponding opposite. The original language are two faces that face each other. The corresponding opposite. Another translation, completer. Completer. The, the goofy movie, You Complete Me. Um, the two things are equal opposites. And when they are together, they complete what, what God has as the plan for that, the, the suitable helper. Now, let me try to paint this in a picture that's easily understood. The female is not less than, is not incapable of thinking and producing and glorifying God and serving his purpose. She's not to aid him as he does it, She's to aid him as he does it, as he aids her as she does it, with equal capacity and equal potential. The greatest thing I ever got to tell my daughter was, you know what? You can lead as many people to Christ as I can. You can bless the name of our Savior Jesus as much as I can. You're as important as any person that's ever walked this earth, and you have all the potential as any man, and equal opposite. What an awesome thing to tell 
females. Here's, here's a good explanation of that. If I were to take you, and I've, I've got a surgical center back here. I don't have very good anesthesia, but I've got a surgical center. And I were to say, you know what? i got a way for you to lose weight. i got a way for you to cast off half of the things that are bothering you. I found a way to cut you in half today. I got a distant D95 back here, a saw, and I've got a way to cut you in half. Let me ask you, which half would you rather be? Your left half or your right half? Now, we're going to do it. We got a saw back here. Which half would you rather be? You know what? Both halves are dead if you cut them in half. Both halves are dead if you cut them in half. Let me give you another example. If you were to have an airplane and it's out here at the airport, um, it, it's a King Air and it's ready to rock and roll, and you got a trip lined up. And you go get in that plane, and it's awesome, and it pulls up, and it takes off, and you're flying. Let me ask you which wing you want to fall off, the left or the right. You can keep one of them. Pick one that's shiny because you're going to get to keep it, but one of those wings is going to fall off. It's the same idea. You take a wing off, guess what? It doesn't matter. It's going to crash and burn. That is the idea of an Ezra Konegdo, an equal opposite and that is, that is a gender truth. Now, you can't apply that to marriage, yes, but that is a gender truth. The female of the human race has as much potential, has as much capacity to serve the purpose that God created and to honor God as any man that's ever walked. What a truth we need to tell people. Last set of verses, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not a random result, but the product of a wise and loving and kind and marvelous and powerful God, and infinitely so. That is who we are as people. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Glad y'all are here tonight. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. During Father, we come tonight, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your truth. And we're thankful that you love us enough to give us your truth and that your truth is right and it's good and it's best because that's who you are. And it's trustworthy because you are. And your grace and your love and your goodness are shown to us because that's who you are. And so we're thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace your truth, that we would stand boldly upon your truth, we would proclaim your truth. Lord, I'm thankful for the, the things we just passed through tonight. I pray that we, we take them in. I pray for our sisters and our, and our mothers and our, and our wives and our daughters that they would understand. They're not less than built to just serve somebody that does a greater thing, but they have the full potential of any, any, any created person. Lord, I praise you for that. I pray that together we're better. Together we lift up your name Together, you're honored and you're pleased. And Lord, we just come, and again, I pray for the folks that are here tonight. Bless them, encourage them. Pray for the families represented here. Bless them, encourage them as well. I, I pray for the folks listening in some other means right now. I pray that you bless them as well. We're thankful for your truth. I pray we would walk in it, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Glad you're here. You're dismissed.